morning. Morning. Glad everyone is here today. Please uh, find your way to chapter two of John. We are working our way through the beautiful letter that John has written. Last week we saw that the, the true temple has entered the temple. The true temple, the everlasting temple, who understands the true purpose of the temple, has righteous anger. Anger that comes from the heart of God. Jesus has come into his father's house and finds a disaster. The temple is where God's presence rested. We saw that last week. A building that encompassed the Holy of Holies. It was a place that anyone in the world could come and worship the one true living God. It was a light on the hill. The temple was where the presence of God, presence of God rested. Yes, we saw that. But it is also a place that anyone could come and get an understanding of the penalty of sin. Think about all the sacrifices that were offered there year after year. They had the burnt offering, which signified uh, propitiation for sin, complete surrender and commitment to God. There was a sin offering, and it was for the ones who sinned unintentionally or, or was unclean. And they did this offering in order to attain purification. They also had a guilt offering. It was made by a person who deprived another of his rights or, or desecrated something holy. And then there was the peace offering or a fellowship offering, they called it. It symbolized fellowship with God. Think about how many sacrifices were made year after year. Now picture the amount of blood that had been shed there. The events that took place in that in that temple gave a clear picture that sin separates man from God and that there is a price to be paid for sin. It was clear to understand for anyone who had an eye to see or an ear to hear. And when one has that understanding of what sin does and the penalty of sin, that will lead them to the salvation that God has provided. And that salvation is available through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you. So do you know how the temple, so, so do you see how the temple is but a shadow of the one to come? The temple was a place of mediation between God and human beings. But now, after the resurrection of Jesus, we see that Jesus is the true temple. Jesus now takes over the temple's function as a place of mediation between God and man. Now, I want you to see this also. Jesus not only embodied what the temple had signified, but he also now embodies everything to which Israel's feasts and festivals had pointed. Here's an example. Listen to Zechariah 14, 7 through 8. He says, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. This is the, called the Festival of Booths or, or Tabernacles, a, a festival that Israel celebrates every year. And their celebration involved outpouring of water and the kindling of lights in the temple. It was a symbolic anticipation of the fulfillment of what Zechariah had proclaimed. Now watch this. When the people had lit all those torches in the temple, Jesus stood in that light and he said, I am the light of the world. Those burning torches symbolize, symbolize the continuous day of God's glorious presence. And Jesus stood in that light 
and made the I am statement. I am the light of the world. Those lights pointed to the one true light that came into the world that day. And during that same time, on the last day of that festival, they were pouring out the water. And Jesus makes another statement. What did he say? He said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me and the scripture, as, as, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So, so, so do you see how Jesus has embodied the festivals? But like a good infomercial. But wait, there's more. Jesus said, listen, he said, streams of living water will flow from within him. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? But that statement during that festival would, would make a Jewish person think about Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel has a vision about the future, and he's brought to the temple. And there is water flowing out of the temple. And they measured the water, and it was hand deep. It was ankle deep. It was knee deep. It's waist deep. It keeps rising. And then it's deep enough to swim in, and then it becomes a river that cannot be passed. And, and Ezekiel continues, and he says this. Then he led me to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, the water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be, a, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the water of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Angedi to Anaglum. It will be a place for the spreading of the nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But, it, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. The water in Ezekiel's vision gushed from the temple and gave life to everything that it came in contact with. Jesus said, I am the living water. My spirit will give life to those who are spiritually thirsty. You may come to me and have life, he said. Jesus is the wonderful fulfillment of the temple. He embodied what the temple had signified. He is the living water that gives life. And he's not just a light on the hill. He's now a light to the world. That means that he has also embodied everything to which Israel's feasts and festivals had pointed. Amen. So beautiful to see that. So beautiful to see how all this comes together for God's glory. <clears throat> now, I want us to read in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. We read it last week, and we mined some gold last week, but we're going to dig in a little more before we move on. So follow along as I read. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, verse 13. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. 
And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said, said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. I love what John says about the disciples here in, in chapter two. This, this is a challenge for all of us. This is what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. When, when they saw what Jesus, when they saw that Jesus had zeal for his father's house, they remembered what had been written. When they became witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, they remembered what Jesus had said. So what does it take to be a disciple of Jesus? It begins with, believing the scriptures, and believe the words that Jesus spoke. That's what the disciples did. That's what we are to do. Believe the scriptures and believe the words that Jesus spoke. Now, last week, we spent a lot of time on how Jesus is the true temple. We saw how Jesus was the fulfilled prophecy when it came to the temple. We wrote Revelation 21, 22 in our margins. Remember what John said? He said, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Well, you can add Ezekiel eleven sixteen in your margins there because God says, I have been a sanctuary for them. And then Isaiah 8, 14, Isaiah is looking forward. He says of God, he will be a sanctuary. So this was God's plan the entire time. So we understand that Jesus is a true temple. We got that. So today, I want to look at the deity of Jesus. The scriptures are clear on the deity of Jesus. Jesus' deity, that is, he is God, is declared throughout the entire New Testament. And John is on a mission to make sure that everyone understands that Jesus is God. He started with chapter 1, verse 1. You remember? In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In that statement, John is saying that Jesus is both God and with God. He is with God and distinct from God, and yet he is God. Let that swirl around up in there for a little while. Figure that out, let me know. He is with God and distinct from God, and yet he is God. And John just keeps making that point. All the way through this gospel, he does it paragraph after paragraph, claim after claim, word after word, miracle after miracle, all the way to the culminating reality of his resurrection, which is the final validation of his claim to deity. We see his deity at his baptism. God says what? This is my son. At the wedding, Jesus revealed his glory there on that day. And we see it here again at the temple. Jesus himself makes a statement that he makes a statement that everyone should have been focused on instead of worrying about the temple being torn down. They should have clung to these words. Jesus said, and to those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house, my father's house, a house of trade. 
My father's house should have stopped everyone in their tracks. There should have been a guy in the back of the room with his hand raised. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm waiting to be called on because he's got a question he needs to ask. Somebody should have been back there raising their hand. Uh, excuse me, did you just say my father's house? We, we know this is God's house. I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Didn't anybody else hear what this man just said? Because if you are saying that this is your father's house, then that means that you are claiming to be the father's son. Is that correct? Is that what you said? So my father's house should have got some questions. Or maybe, maybe they should have, instead of worrying about the temple being torn down, maybe they, they should have questioned what just happened before Jesus made that statement. Think about this. Jesus comes into the temple. Your average Jewish man. Probably healthy, you know, he was a carpenter, did physical labor, walked everywhere he went, no Uber. Healthy, but he was, he, he, he probably did not have the build that would intimidate people. Yet this one man, this one man makes a whip out of cords. A whip. Ooh. Really? And with that whip, he drove out the ones who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And on top of that, he pours out the coins of the money changers and turns over their tables with a whip. One man. One man. Now, they consider this an event, an, an, an event. But I see it this act as a miracle. No one in the crowd stopped him. Thousands of people there. I'm sure three or four burly sheep herders could have tackled him and took Jesus down. But that didn't happen. There were at least 300 temple guards there on that day. Men who are trained to stop anyone causing any trouble. They didn't stop him. They didn't step in trained for this and then there were the roman soldiers they're right outside the wall of the temple looking in and any kind of in, in and if any kind of disturbance happened they would come in and quickly shut that down yet they did nothing no one stopped one man with a whip from clearing the temple courtyard no one put a hand on it So instead of stopping Jesus and placing him under arrest, what happened? Well, the Jews came up to him and asked him, who do you think you are? That's the best they had? After all that? Who do you think you are? So, you, so do you see why I call it a miracle and not an event? You see, Jesus just, just, just displayed a little of God's power that day. Just a little. Only God can move out that many people and that many animals without any resistance. No man could ever do this. The deity of Jesus was clearly being revealed on that day. So as you can see, there was much more than just the statement that he made about his father's house that reveals who Jesus is. 
Anyone who has eyes to see should have known he was God or that he was from God. Everyone, after they saw and heard what happened, that they should have said what Nick at night said. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these things or do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's what Nicodemus said. It was obvious to those who had an ear to hear and eyes to see. Jesus' deity was on full display that day. We could see his divine knowledge there. Jesus states, he, he makes a statement. He, he tells everybody what is going to happen in the future. He did that when he said, you tear this temple down and I will raise it in three days. He was making a statement about the future. Now we know he was talking about his body, but the Jews who confronted him on that day did not know that. Jesus just told them that they would be the ones who would be responsible for putting him on the cross. Jesus knew their minds. He knew their hearts and what they would do in the future. Jesus knows the mind of God. Jesus even knew the future of his own life. He knew that he was going to give up his life for all who would believe. He knew that. His deity was so beautifully displayed that day. He was zealous for the appropriate worship of God, and that reveals his divine holiness. He had a righteous anger over religious corruption. He was passionate and for reverence. He had the mind of God. His divine sovereignty was on display. That was made clear. That was made clear by showing that he was Lord over the temple, right? That he has authority over the temple and over the worship. And because we can study the word backwards, we can see that on that day, Jesus was also declaring that he has authority over his own death. They would tear down the temple, but he would rise again. Amen. Jesus is God. Look down at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows all people and he himself knew what was in man. In other words, God knows the heart of every person, every person. First Corinthians four, the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Only God knows the intent of the heart. God will judge every man with the, when the motives and intentions of the heart are revealed. Only God can judge because it is only God who knows what is inside of man. And John says it right here. Jesus knows all people and he himself knew what was in man. Only God could do that. What did the Jews tell Jesus to do in order for them to believe that he had authority to do what he did in the temple? Show us a sign, they said, right? Show us a sign and we'll believe. But you see, Jesus knew their heart. He knew that showing them a sign 
or a miracle would not change their heart. He knows the mind of man. He knows every thought in every person's mind. He knows the thoughts of everyone. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever done something with ulterior motives? Have you ever been manipulative? You know, do something or say something that is not quite the truth just so you can get your way or get or get someone to do what you want them to do or to get someone to think a certain way about you. We all have. We all have. But have you ever thought about the fact that God knows your heart? He knows your thoughts. He knows your intent. We may get what we wanted and think that nobody will know, but God knows. He knows the heart. God knows how we got it. Whatever we wanted kind of ruins it, doesn't it? Kind of takes the shine off that apple. Kids, it's like this. You're up in your room goofing off instead of cleaning your room like your parents told you to do. They're all guilty. They're all smiling. <laughs> and then you hear your mama coming down the hall and you cut off your PlayStation or whatever you had going on and you grab the duster and you start dusting, right? And she opens the door and says, oh, what a wonderful child I have. My sinless child is cleaning the room just like I asked him to do. You see, you, you did something to make yourself look good when the whole time you had a deceitful heart. God knows. God knows. God knows the heart of man. Everything we say to each other, God knows the intent behind it. That should rattle our bones. You think about that? Kind of scary, isn't it? God knows the intent behind every word we speak. God knows what is in the heart of man. Which brings me to the next immutable attribute of God. That is an attribute that only God has, which again proclaims the deity of Jesus. Jesus is omniscient. That means that Jesus knows everything. He proved that in the temple on that day. He knew the past. He knew the present and the future. He, he is omniscient. Science is for knowledge. Omni means everything. He has all-inclusive knowledge. So we should never think that we could get away with something or commit a sin, and it'll be all right because no one on this earth ever will ever know. God knows. God knows. Jesus knows everything there is to know. His knowledge is not bound by time. He knows the visible and the invisible. God alone knows every thought, every word, every action, and the collective effect of all thoughts, all words, all actions. His knowledge is a testimony to his deity. He is God. He knows everything that has happened perfectly. You know, we know history, somewhat of history, but we do not know what happened perfectly or the intent of everyone's heart in the past. Jesus knows everything that is happening right now perfectly. We have eyewitness views live on the scene, and they still mess the story up. Jesus knows everything that will happen before it happens perfectly. 
God doesn't learn anything. Nobody teaches God anything. He cannot gain knowledge and he loses no knowledge. And just like that day in the temple, Jesus' presence and power controlled absolutely everything exactly the way they needed to be controlled to bring about his purpose and his glory. Nobody laid a hand on him when he cleared that temple. God was in control and he knew the heart of every man in that temple. A.W. Tozer says this about God's knowledge. He said, God knows all that can be known and that and this he knows instantly and with the fullness of perfection that includes every possible item of knowledge concerning everything that exists or could have existed anywhere in the universe at any time in the past or that may exist in the centuries or ages yet unborn. God knows all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in, our, and in earth. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but he knows all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor does he seek information or ask questions. God is self-existent and is self-existent and self-existent knowledge. He is self-contained and self-contained knowledge and knows what no creature can ever know. He knows himself perfectly and only the intimate uh, and only the infinite can have infinite knowledge of himself. That is God. I don't know if you had that book by A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of the Holy, but I suggest you get it. It helps keep it helps us keep in our, to keep our minds right on who God is. Flip over to Psalm 139. We need to learn more about God's knowledge and who God is. Psalm 139. This gives us a wonderful insight into God's omniscience. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. We could stop right there, couldn't we? That's enough. But he goes on, you know where I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you foam, formed my in, inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet they were none of them. There was none of them. How precious to be are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than sand. I awake and I am still with you. Wow. The one true living God is not some faraway God that doesn't know or care about every one of us. He knows each of us intimately. Does that not give you comfort? God knows every detail of our lives. He is with us at all times. That should give us peace. Knowing that he is in control of all. His hand is upon us. You know, we like the all-knowing God when we read what we just read. We like the all-knowing God when he leads us and his hand is upon us. We like that God. Well, that's the same omniscient God that knows our hearts. The same God that knows the intent of our heart. You see, we don't, we don't like God knowing everything about us when it comes to sin. Do we? we just don't. But we do love an all-knowing God that loves and cares and wants what is best for us. We can't have it both ways. So my answer to that struggle that every man has, don't sin. That work? Don't sin, it takes away the struggle. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Amen? Now, back to the temple. As we have seen, Jesus' deity is on full display. It may not have registered, but Jesus claimed to be the son of God that day. They heard him say, they heard, you've turned my father's house into a business. They heard that. Jesus is claiming to be the agent of God. He is calling out the ones who were supposed to be protecting the temple and making sure it stayed a place of worship. This is my father's house, he said, and, and you have desecrated this place. They heard it loud and clear. They also heard that John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. They also knew about the Spirit of God coming down on him at his baptism. Jesus turning the water into wine, I'm sure it was not kept a secret. That was tweeted out immediately. But still, they said to him, if you're, if you're acting for God, if you're protecting God, and God is, quote, your father, as you say, and you think you're the son of God, give us a sign. Give us a sign. They, they see, see, this is why they kept asking, because they believed that Jesus was, was just a man with no authority. They didn't see him for who he was. He was just a mere man who had desecrated their temple. So, they, so they're challenging him. Show us a sign. Listen, Jesus gave them plenty of signs. What, what did we just read in verse 23? He, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name. When they saw what? The signs that he was doing. Jesus performed many signs. Now, before we go on, I, I want to make sure that everyone knows this. What is the purpose of signs? 
Was it to bring someone to salvation? Pastor Vince would say, no. No. They were done to declare God's glory and to strengthen the ones who already believe. Know that science does not bring does not bring people to salvation. Salvation comes by what? By the hearing of the word. So if Jesus performed all those signs, what did the Jews mean when they said show us a sign? Listen, these people saw sign after sign, miracle after miracle, none of miracle after miracle. None of that made any difference in their hearts. You see, they they wanted a sign, not on earth, but a sign from heaven. They wanted some astronomical sign. They, they wanted something to happen in the sky. They, they wanted a sign from above. You see, when they look at Jesus, all they saw was a man. And, you know, his signs could be trickery or whatever. You know, that's the way they thought about it. He, he didn't look like he was from heaven. Just looked like a normal man. I'm not sure what they thought someone from heaven was supposed to look like. They, the halo or something. I don't know. But that, they looked at him and said, you know, this guy, he's just a man. All I can say is don't judge a book by its cover, right? They should have known what Isaiah said about the Messiah. He had no form or majesty, majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was a man, but he was also God. These people were blinded. They didn't have an eye to see. These people did not have any love for God. The scripture says that. They love themselves. They love money. They hate souls. They make people in the sons of hell. That is why they couldn't see the, the deity of Jesus on that day. That's why they could not worship the one true living God. And that's why they had turned the worship of God into a business, into a business. If you turn worship into a business, then you will have the blind leading the blind. No one will be able to worship God from the heart. They were blinded back then because they had put the things of this world on high and had a very low view of who God is. You know, if they if they had if they were looking at God for who he was, none of that would have happened in that temple. None of that would have happened. They had lost the, the sense of majesty. Instead of the temple being full of broken souls worshiping God, it was full of thieves and animals. No reverence for God. We have to have a right idea about who God is to truly worship Him. A.W. Tozer again says it is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous and, of, and inadequate. We have to see God for who He is. We have to believe the scriptures and believe the words of Jesus. And the word says that Jesus is our savior. He's our redeemer. He is the bread of life, our Lord, 
the creator. He is the son of the living God, the only begotten son, the beloved son. We have to have a right idea of who Jesus is so we can worship him properly. He is wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the almighty high priest, our mediator, author and finisher of our faith. We have to have a right view of who God is. He is the word. He is the foundation, fountain of living water. He's not just some big guy in the sky. He is the rock, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the great I am, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is not just a man. He is the Christ. He is the promised one. He is the king of kings. He is the alpha and omega. We have to have a right idea about who God is before we can truly worship him. So today we have to examine our hearts. God knows our hearts, remember? We have to examine our hearts and ask ourselves, do we know the deity of Jesus? Do we know that we know that he is the son of God? His deity was on full display today as his word was proclaimed. So do you believe his words and who he is? And do we worship him as such? Amen. Amen.